Good morning. A lot of planning that goes on to make sure we can have worship services here, but sometimes you see the Holy Spirit at work in it in ways that you can't possibly plan that well. And, and so folks who have gifts come and lead us in worship, and, and they leave us with that question, is that why we're here? Is that why we live our lives to bring God praise? And I hadn't talked with Clay before him, but that's, of course, exactly what we're going to talk about today. So I love it when God does that for us. I'm so glad you're here. My name is James Green. I'm the teaching pastor here at Cape Bible Chapel. Hope I've had the chance to meet you personally. If I haven't, shame on me. And after the service, please come and introduce yourself because we love that God has brought you here so we can come together today. If this is your first time with us, you're going to need your Bible. And so if you don't have one, there should be a hardback copy there in front of you. Every time we get together for a weekend service, we're going to open God's Word and we're going to dig in and see what it is that He wants to teach us that we can then go out and apply in our lives. So you're going to need that every time, so please take one if you don't have it. Join me there in the fifth chapter of Galatians. We're going to look at verses 7 to 15 today. And we'll have the Scripture references up on the screen behind me, but let's be honest, it's hard to underline them up there. So that's why we want you to have the Bible there in front of you, so you can have that with you. We're nearing the end of this series, and we've called it Understanding Grace. And we have gone chapter by chapter, verse by verse, through the entirety of Paul's letter to the churches in this region here in Galatia. And now Paul's getting to the really applicational part. And he's asking these people questions, and he loves these people. And so the question today is, what's the motivation? And that's a good question for all of us. What's our motivation for choosing to do whatever it is we do? Here in Galatia, he says, what's your motivation for choosing to obey the truth of the gospel? Or if you're not going to, what would your motivation be for falling from grace? What would your motivation be for trying to keep the law? He wants to really question why they do the things that they do. That's a good question for all of us. What motivates us to do anything? I remember taking a class back in college about a zillion years ago, and it was a drama class. And we studied methods of acting. And one of the things I remember was something called the method acting technique as opposed to the classical acting technique. In classical acting, you just pretend to be somebody else. That doesn't sound that hard, does it? But if you're in method acting, you want to become the character. And so you want to figure out internally, you know, how would my character feel about this certain situation? If they were in this scenario, what would they do? And the mantra for the method actor becomes, what's my motivation? And so if you've studied acting at all or if you're engaged in that, this little commercial from the good folks at Sprite becomes especially funny to you. Check this out real quick for me. This here freight train, Pete Pablo, me, I'm Motif. There's only one drink fat enough to quench our thirst, and that's Turbo Sports. God genius, the can's upside down. Don't talk to me like a child. I played Hamlet at Cambridge. Once again, you've ruined my concentration. Excuse me, excuse me, what's, what's my motivation? When you're thirsty, trust your gut, not some actor. That's it, I am going to my trailer. Those guys clearly a little out of character there. But he asked the question, what's my motivation? That's a good question. That's the thing we saw that Jesus was just so amazing at unearthing when you look at his life through the Gospels. People would come to Jesus with a question, and what would he do? He'd respond with another question. Now, it wasn't because Jesus was dodging the question or he needed some more time to come up with an answer. He was always trying to figure out, hey, what's your motivation behind coming and asking that? You know, you're asking this question, but what do you really want to know? 
Because we know for sure a lot of the time people would come up to Jesus and what they wanted to do was trap him in a corner, right? This is really a tried and true teaching technique. If you're teaching somebody and you can get them to answer their own question, then you know they really have a grasp of the subject matter. So we want to understand our own motivation. We want to understand what motivates the people around us, people we come in contact with. Because it's really, really key to figure out why we do what we do, why other people act the way they do. Heard a story one time about an American tourist, and he was on vacation down in Mexico. And he was at the end of this tiny little pier. He was in this small coastal Mexican fishing village. A tiny little boat comes up with just one fisherman in it, and it docks there. And, and the tourist looked inside the boat, and there were just several huge yellowfin tuna, biggest he'd ever seen. And the American tourist complimented the fisherman on the size, the quality of his fish. And he said, hey, how long did it take you to catch him? And the fisherman said, well, only a little while. And so the American said, well, then why don't you stay out longer and catch more fish? And the fisherman said, well, with this, I have all that I need to supply my family's needs. And so the tourist said, well, what do you do with the rest of your time? And this Mexican fisherman said, well, I live a very full and busy life. I sleep late, and I get up and I fish a little, and then I play with my children all afternoon, then I take a siesta with my wife, Maria. We stroll into the village each evening. We eat dinner together. I play guitar with my amigos. Maria and I dance. They said, I have a very busy life. And the tourist laughed at this. He said, you know, I could help you. You should spend more time fishing. When you catch more fish, you'll sell more fish and buy a bigger boat. Eventually, you can buy a bunch of boats and start your own fishing enterprise, you'll, you'll have this fleet of boats. Then instead of selling your catch to somebody in the market, you can go and sell directly to a processor. You know, I bet eventually you could open up your own canning operation. You control the product, the processing, the distribution. If you do that, you could leave this small coastal fishing village. You can move to Mexico City. Eventually, maybe move to Los Angeles. You probably move to New York and run this fishing empire. This Mexican fisherman's pretty astounded. He said, well, how long would all that take? The American tourist said, probably 15 to 20 years. But what then, asked the fisherman. And here the American laughed, and he said, that's the best part. You know, at just the right time, you could sell your company, you could sell stock to the public, and you'd make millions, you'd be rich. Millions, the fisherman exclaimed. Then what? The American said, well, then you could retire. You could move to a small coastal fishing village where you could sleep late and fish a little and play with your grandkids and take a sester with your wife and stroll into the village each evening and play guitar and dance. The fisherman said, that's what I do now. As amusing as the story is, it's really easy to tell these two men had very different motivations. Understanding what motivates us to action is important. And that's what Paul's addressing here in this passage. And he just said in verse 6 that if we walk in freedom in Christ... That would mean we truly understand grace. Well, then external things don't matter. He talks circumcision. He says it doesn't matter if you're circumcised or you're uncircumcised. Here's the thing that matters. It's faith working itself out in the life of a Christ follower so that other people can see the love of Christ in us. That's the motivation. That others will see Christ in our actions. We'll bring him praise. Now, certainly, I know we know this, not, that's not the only thing that can motivate us. Sadly, there's a lot of other things that jump out ahead of that far too often. We can be motivated by money, like the American tourist was. 
We can be motivated by rewards or status like the tourist was. A lot of times we can be motivated, and one of the real biggies in motivation is fear. We can be motivated to do things by fear. I don't know if we realize that or not. My family and I right now are praying through Ramadan, the month of Muslim fasting, and and you hear how they pray, Muslims pray, and they have to do it five times a day, and they have to do it in a certain language, and make sure you do it before sunrise and after sunset, and you have to face a certain direction. And all those things are motivated by fear. If you don't do them, then Allah will be mad at you. Well, I think that's kind of the vehicle that these Judaizers were doing. Hey, you've got to do these external things. You've got to keep the law. You've got to be circumcised, or God will be mad at you. And this is a little comical then in context because Paul's going to indicate the Galatians were already being obedient to the truth. That meant necessarily they were keeping the laws, but originally it was out of the right motivation. It wasn't because of fear of breaking the law or consequences. They were doing it because they loved God. They wanted to walk with Him. Then somehow it says they get hindered. These false teachers come in. They have this false gospel. And now all of a sudden some of the Galatians or toying around with this idea of trying to earn God's favor. And then they're not going to experience the love of God. They're not going to obey the truth. And they're being told, hey, if you just obey the laws, God will love you. Well, just like the fishermen, (laughs) that's what they were already doing. So the question becomes for us practically, why do we live our lives the way we do? If we're here and we obey the law of the land, do we do that because we love the Lord? Are we motivated out of fear for the consequences? Do we want to be a shining light for God and let our lives show His love? Paul wants the Galatians to consider their motivation here. So let's start by looking at verses 7 to 10 of Galatians chapter 5. This is Paul's continued plea to the churches in Galatia to not follow false teaching, to not turn back to trying to earn what God so graciously wants to give them. And he says this, he says, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion did not come from him who calls you. He says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. In verse 10, I have confidence in you in the Lord that you will adopt no other view, but the one who is disturbing you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. So Paul starts out and he uses a running metaphor. Running was the sport back then that everybody knew about. You know, this would be like me using a St. Louis Cardinals reference or a World Cup reference or something like that. The idea is his audience will connect with this. They'll understand it. Hopefully that'll help them apply it. Paul uses the running metaphor in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He does it in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He likes this illustration. And what he means is the church in Galatia was moving. It was really cruising along. If the church in Galatia were a runner, she had hit her stride. She got to that spot where she was kind of running effortlessly. But then somebody had darted in in front of her and cut her off. Now, if you're a runner, and if you are here today, can I ask, why? (laughs) What on earth are you thinking? (laughs) Do you not have a couch and a good book? Please. Is there no internet where you live? (laughs) I'm not trying to encourage slothfulness, I promise. I, I just, I don't get you. I'm clearly not a runner. My favorite high school sports team shirt from years ago was the cross-country one. It said, my sport is your sport's punishment. It's what running is to many of us. But, but I get it. There's some of you here, you're fearfully and wonderfully and unusually made, and you enjoy running. And so if you're one of them, then you get this even better. Because the idea is that running is hard. Running is physically demanding. 
But I know some runners, and I've heard some of them say, in running, you get to this spot where you kind of get you know, in a zone, and you find this perfect stride, and, and you get your second wind, and really running is kind of like gliding. And when you get to that spot, when you're there in stride, if something throws you off, that's bad. To pick that back up again, then you've got to readjust and gather yourself and deal with the distraction and try and hit your stride again. It's difficult. And that's what's happened here in Galatia. And Paul uses a singular pronoun. He indicates it's really some one person that has broken the church's stride. It's whoever the leader of the Judaizers is. Paul doesn't name him here. I don't know if he knows who he is. But we see the result of his actions. The churches were running well. They had their stride broken, but they were running the race by faith. They were obeying the truth, not in an effort to be saved, but because they understood grace. And because they were applying the truth of the gospel. That was their motivation. And the truth that they grasped was that salvation is a gift from God. It comes by His grace and through faith in His Son, Jesus. And so the Galatians were embracing that. They were drawing close to God. And they were motivated by love. And they saw God correctly. They saw Him as both the ultimate judge. He alone can declare us blameless and righteous. And they saw Him as the loving daddy who wants to adopt us. And give us our inheritance. So they're responding in obedience. They're cruising along and somebody cuts in. And they have their stride broken. And that resulted in some of them, not all of them, thinking they could get back on stride. They could get back in rhythm through legalistic efforts. Like keeping the law. Or being circumcised. And in verse 8, Paul says, now come on. You know that false teaching didn't come from God. He said God was calling the Galatians. That's just like he calls to all of us. His desire is to have a relationship with every person in the world. That's what we were created for. But these Judaizers come in, and they're teaching works for salvation. And Paul says, no, I've already shared. God's calling you by the grace of Christ. And what Paul means is, if our motivation to obey God ends up coming from any reason other than love, then it's not from Jesus Christ. And false teaching is certainly motivated by something other than love. Then in verse 9, Paul starts a little cooking show here. He uses an illustration from the kitchen. He says, just a little bit of leaven, a little bit of yeast, leavens the whole lump of dough. I don't know if you're a baker. I like to bake. When, when you're baking, if you use baker's yeast, what it does is it converts the sugar in the food into carbon dioxide, into gas. That's what makes the dough rise or whatever it is you're baking. That's why unleavened things don't rise. They don't have that leaven in them. Now, I'm aware of only one time when leaven is used in the New Testament. It's in Matthew chapter 13, verse 33, where that term, yeast or leaven, is used, and it doesn't refer to false teaching. Every other place you see that word, it means there's some heresy going on. And what Paul's saying here with heresy doesn't take much. Just a little bit of false teaching will permeate through something. You remember I've said this before, the best false teaching, the most effective at getting someone to listen and follow it, it'll use large chunks of truth, and then it'll just sprinkle in a little bit of falsehood. There's no false religion going around teaching that gravity doesn't exist, so you can jump off buildings and you'll be fine. I mean, that's just too goofy. Nobody's going to believe that. But there are people hearing, hey, you know, there's recreational drugs out there. They'll amplify your life. They'll just make you a better you, and you'll be more mellow, and you'll be more fun, and people take these drugs and jump off buildings. Just a little bit of leaven. 
Paul's saying just a little bit of do this and don't do that and add this. It'll wreck things. And the Judaizers would come through and say, well, sure, Paul's right on about Jesus, but just add in this circumcision. Just sprinkle in a little bit of this keeping the law. And if you don't get circumcised, ooh, watch out, that's bad. See, and that's not the gospel at all, is it? So that's Paul's concern in this passage. If we would develop a fear out of what happens if we don't keep the law, then we won't actually obey the law for the right reasons. It only takes a little bit of false teaching to lead us astray. That's why verse 10 is so encouraging. Paul says, I'm still confident that you folks are not going to fall for this heresy. He believes they're going to stand firm and not turn back to trying to keep the law. They won't fall from grace like we talked about a couple weeks ago. And he adds in a little jab at this lead false teacher. He says, hey, he's going to get his. And then he's going to get just a little more graphic in this next section. Let's look at verses 11 to 12. Paul writes, but I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? He says, if I was doing that, then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. And in verse 12, he says, I wish that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. Ouch. (laughs) Pretty harsh there, Paul. What's he trying to teach in these verses? We always have to come along and ask these observation questions as we read and study. And so it becomes obvious there are folks back in Paul's day who are running around saying, well, Paul's still teaching that you need to be circumcised. Now, for me, there's no doubt that Paul was teaching that before he met Jesus on the Damascus Road. He's probably shouting that from the rooftops. But now he's saying, hey, if I was still going around teaching that message, you can't become a Christ follower unless you're circumcised. He says, then why would I be being persecuted by the Judaizers? Paul goes on to share there's a key difference, a huge difference between the true gospel that he was preaching and this false gospel, and it's the cross of Jesus Christ. Paul calls it the stumbling block of the cross. He uses this Greek word scandalon. That word really means offense. Do we think of it that way, the offense of the cross? The cross is a stumbling block to a lot of people because it's offensive. And now here's what we need to grasp about that message because here's what the offense basically boils down to. The cross of Jesus Christ highlights our total inability to add anything to our salvation. We can't earn it. When we read in the Scripture that Jesus fulfilled the law, we need to understand He didn't abolish the law. He didn't do away with the law. But what He accomplished on the cross by defeating sin and death, by establishing this kingdom that will last forever, that act then made obedience to the law system and external things like circumcision, the cross made those things unnecessary for salvation. After the cross, salvation is only available because of what Christ accomplished on the cross. And we didn't earn that. And that's offensive to our nature because we want to earn our own way. And here's the sad result of a verse like that. And here's where we really have to question what's our motivation because we'll see churches today fall into heresy. Or they'll end up in factions. Or they'll end up splitting because nobody wants to be offensive. We won't address conflict. We won't be willing to speak the truth and love to people. Paul teaches this over and over many times. The most loving thing we can do at certain times is to offend people. The message of the cross is offensive, and we shouldn't have to apologize for that. We need to go share it. Now hear me, we need to share it in love, 
but we still have to share it. If we share the gospel in a way that doesn't include why Jesus had to go to the cross, to deal with our sin issues, to satisfy God's anger over sin, we don't talk about the, the fact that Jesus took my place, <laughs> he took sinful man's place on the cross to make a way for us to be reconciled to God, well, that would be a pretty inoffensive gospel. And I've heard people present it that way. As accurate as it is to say, well, Jesus loves you, and he has a great plan for your life, that's not very offensive, is it? That's because it doesn't include the detail of the cross. The cross is the scandalous part of the gospel. But because we don't want to offend anybody, sometimes that's how we try to share the good news without telling somebody what's really so incredibly good about it. And Paul's saying the cross is a stumbling block to people, and that's okay. Don't take away the offense. If our motivation is loving people right, we can't take away the stumbling block. And people will want to fight you on this. I don't know if you've run into this or not. People want everybody to get along and everybody to go to heaven. And so they'll say things like, well, God is love, and a loving God would never do this. He'd never do that. A loving God would never send anybody to hell. And if somebody says that, they've missed what the Bible says about God. When the Bible says that God is love, and it does say that. It's in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. But we need to understand love, the way we think of it, is not God. We want love to be all sweet and sappy. Oh, guys, look, there's a rainbow, you know. Telling somebody they have a sin issue, that doesn't sound very loving, does it? So that must not be from God. It's not what the Scripture says. Love is not God. Scripture says God is love. So in the Bible, when we see him doing things, those are the most loving things. In the Bible, sometimes God has harsh words for folks who are wandering and going astray. And we can't read it and say, well, that's not very loving. Because it's what God does. And so it is love. He is loving. And now hear me on this. I'm not saying, hey, run straight out this afternoon and tell somebody they're a sinner and they're going to be eternally separated from God. I'm not advocating running out and smacking somebody with the good news. I think you need to develop a relationship. You need to build a platform to be able to tell them that. But you've got to tell them. To truly share the gospel, we have to share all of the gospel. And Paul's saying, that's what I did. I brought all the gospel. I shared the offensive part of the cross. And so if people say, well, that offends me, so you must not love me. And Paul's willing to say, no, I will offend you because I do love you. I only offend the people I love. It's probably not a true statement for me. I've probably offended lots of people. This is what Paul is doing. It's the same thing Jesus was willing to do. It's offending people with the truth. We've read this letter together. Paul's called the Galatians foolish. That's offensive. He's basically said they're dumb for even considering this false teaching from the Judaizers. Why is he saying that? He's saying it because he loves them. Then Paul gets pretty graphic there in verse 12. This is one of those verses where you always wonder if going verse by verse is the best way to go through the Bible. But I'm sure it is, so here we are. We're going to deal with it. And I think in verse 12, Paul clearly has circumcision in mind. And he says, hey, if you false teachers are so enthusiastic about making sure that guys cut a little extra skin off their body, why not just go all out and cut it all off? 
you know what I mean. He's treating the act of circumcision like keeping the law here. He's basically saying, hey, if you want to keep one law, you're going to have to keep all of them. So he's saying, hey, if you want to cut off a little bit of skin, why don't you just cut it all off? And Paul might be trying to make a joke here, but I don't see Paul as much of a jokester. <laughs> but I wonder if he's thinking, hey, you know, if these false teachers would mutilate themselves, if they'd castrate themselves, they wouldn't be able to reproduce. Wouldn't have to worry about a next generation of heretics. I don't know. But this is pretty clear. There's some tension here. First, Paul calls out the leader of the Judaizers, and now he's proposing mutilation for the false teachers. This is pretty intense, even from a guy who's willing to offend people. Okay, our last section for today is verses 13 to 15. Paul's going to explain more about what freedom is, how we should regard our Christian liberty if love is our motivation. He's saying our freedom in Christ is for love. It's not for lust. Paul writes this, For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. He says, but through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. He's basically saying, in this statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He says, but if you bite and devour one another, take care that you're not consumed by one another. Paul's saying, don't try to convert freedom in Jesus Christ into a license to sin. For Christ followers, we can't use Christian liberty as an excuse to do what we want to do. This is one of the primary reasons that Jesus always performed those motivation checks he did in the gospel accounts. He was trying to see if we could answer one of the toughest questions any of us will ever face. Are we willing to die to ourselves? And you've got to understand the notion of dying to yourself doesn't mean, okay, I'm going to die to myself and then sit around in misery going to be no remnant of joy in my life at all. That's not the deal. Because dying to ourselves should mean living for Christ. should mean living for His praise. And that's where the joy is. If we walk with Jesus Christ, please hear me on this. We should be the most joyful people anybody is ever going to run into. We should be making people sick. We are so joyful. We really should. If we display the joy of the Lord in our lives... That makes God smile. I guarantee it does. I like to tinker around the house and do home improvement projects and fix stuff. It's just something I like doing. Some projects. I think there's a real reason for this. If you're involved in ministry, and every Christ follower is called to be a minister, and if you are, then you get this. You probably like doing some kind of hands-on project, don't you? You like doing something tangible, because honestly, if you do something like that, you can complete it. You can step back from it, and it's done. Because in ministry, when you're dealing with people, the job's never done, right? Even if we nail it, even if we die to ourselves really well today, sun's going to come up tomorrow, we're going to have to do it again. People are never finished. But if you're ministering, if you're leading a small group, or you're involved in our make initiative, or you're serving somewhere, anywhere, then you get this. You know exactly what I'm talking about. People are hard. God built all the stuff in six days and took a nap. It was easy for him. He's been working on people ever since he created Adam. People are tricky. So sometimes it's nice, you know, to do like a, a home improvement project or build something or paint something or sew something or do something that you're good at that God's wired you to do. Go take a run. Ugh. You know, whatever, whatever it would be that you like to do, 
Because then when you get done, you can step back and look at it and go, wow, that's a good feeling. So some things like that I enjoy doing. I like fixing things around the house most of the time. There's some things I don't like doing. And then there's some things that scare me, like electricity, but that's a different story. I don't like to finish sheetrock. I will never come to your house and finish sheetrock because I stink at it. I'm not good at it. But I've done it in my own home before. I normally grumble and complain the whole time. But I do it for one reason, because when I get done, if the job looks good, and that's a 50-50 shot, if it looks good, my wife will come and she'll inspect it. And if it passes, she'll smile. She'll come and she'll stand there and she'll kind of put her fingers together like this and she'll turn her head. And if it passes inspection, she smiles. I wish you could see it. I wish she'd let me take a picture of her doing it, but there's no way she will. But her smile says, yes, that's good. And so I'm willing to persist and endure in projects that I don't even enjoy at the time for the joy of knowing that if I complete it well, it'll make Christina smile. And here's the deal. I wish I applied that so much better in my life for the glory of God. But if I'm honest, there's sometimes I won't do hard things. I won't persist when life gets hard. I won't address a conflict. I won't share the gospel simply because I know that it will make God smile. That doesn't seem to be enough motivation for me all the time. If I'm honest, sometimes I'll take the path of least resistance. I want to do the easy thing or, or the thing that will bring me passing pleasure. I'll get involved in the sin that will so easily entangle instead of delighting in the Lord and doing the hard thing. Why would I do that? Because my motivation then isn't love. It's my comfort. It's my pleasure. So I'll trade in the freedom of Christ for fleeting moments of selfishness. I'll eat that food that I know I shouldn't eat because honestly, I don't need dessert at every meal, do I? But, oh, it's so good. I'll give in. I'll watch a little bit of that movie or I'll play that online game or I'll, I'll watch some of that video on YouTube. I know I shouldn't watch some things in there that will make me stumble, but it, it's so funny. Or it's such a good love story or such a good action film, whatever. And when I do goofy things like that, it's because I'm not motivated to make God smile. I'm not as motivated to make God joyful as I am to make my wife joyful. That's embarrassing to admit. Sometimes we're not willing to die to ourselves. We live in this world of instant gratification and, and pleasing ourselves and Paul's saying, the goal of freedom is not your own lusts. It's not passing pleasure. It's not making ourselves comfortable. It's supposed to be love. The goal of freedom is to love correctly. Love is supposed to be our motivation as Christ followers. I've had serious issues in my life. I've had anger issues and alcohol issues and food issues. But if I'm honest about all those things, every one of them is a lust issue. Or about me getting what I want with every one of those issues I mean I truly didn't have an anger issue I had a Jesus issue I didn't have an alcohol issue I had a Jesus issue I didn't understand his love and I'm so blessed and where I've experienced healing in those areas it's only because I sat right down in the middle of Christ's love and let it just wash all over me like Jesus was a cup of hot water and I was a bag of tea and you just dropped me in there and I seeped in there. 
God's love transform me. It permeated to the point where I can become more and more like Jesus. If you only hear one thing all day, listen to me. That's where the freedom is. Paul's saying, don't use your freedom to sin. Use your freedom to love and serve others. Freedom in Christ is not saying, great, now I can do whatever I want. Freedom in Christ is saying, great, now I can love and serve others. That's freedom in Christ. Paul's already blasted two different kinds of slavery previously in this letter. Slavery to the law, slavery to our sin nature. Now he promotes a good kind of slavery. He says, hey, if you want to be slave to something, be slave to loving your neighbor. <laughs> he quotes Leviticus 19.18. It says, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Here's our application. Love your neighbor. <laughs> Be motivated by love. Apply love. Go out and serve one another. And he quotes a really hard-to-grasp concept. If you think about it, we're supposed to love our neighbor as ourselves. Ouch. That one hurts. Does that one hurt you? Because I know for sure, if I love my neighbors like I love myself, man, they would appreciate me. Because I love me some me. If I really loved them that way, they'd be blown away. You guys can't see it all the time. I stand up here on stage, you might think I've got it together. (laughs) But a lot of the decisions I make, they're about how they'll benefit me. What if I asked the question before every decision I had to make, for the next act that I have in my life, What if I asked that question, how could I do this in a way that it would benefit my neighbor instead of benefiting me? One of the most spectacular things about the gospel is that it sets us free to love others. Sets us free to celebrate others, to appreciate their gifts and their talents and want the best for them. In our lives, when we see others do well and we rejoice for them, that's evidence of the grace of God. My boy Trace hit his first home run a couple weeks ago. At the present moment, it's his only home run, but I think he might hit more. It was his first home run. I didn't know what to do. I mean, it was kind of that weird, goofy, shock parent moment, you know. And, and, and so, like, I just kind of went on with the game. And the other coach, the coach of the other team, went and got the ball and brought it to me at the end of the inning. And he handed it to me and said, hey, uh, I think you might want to keep this. <laughs> this is kind of an important thing. That was really awesome. And it was the greatest thing because I hadn't even thought about keeping the ball. But the coach on the other team, he brings it to me. He thought about me. He thought about Trace. The other coach was motivated by love. See, do you know that's a great litmus test for whether we're motivated by love or by fear? How do we respond to other people's successes? If we're motivated by fear, then we won't rejoice for others. We won't congratulate and celebrate others' accomplishments. We won't be glad about their spiritual growth or their maturity. We'll actually be threatened by that. We won't see others as brothers and sisters in Christ. We won't see them as co-heirs with Jesus of all that God has. We'll see them as competition. Because fear sets us against one another. But love sets us for one another. And so here's the deal. Maybe you'll recognize this pattern. Maybe this is exactly why God has brought you here today. But if you've professed faith in Jesus Christ, but you live your life in kind of this weird cycle where you say, yeah, I love Jesus, 
and I hate my sin, and I want to live in a way that brings God glory, but then I stumble, and I struggle, and I fall, and I end up back here, and I'm going to distance myself from God for a while. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to try and clean myself up, and then I'll go back to God after I clean myself up. But I notice I struggle again, and I stumble, and I fall away. And then maybe I'll come back again. If that's the kind of life that we're leading, then I just want to inform you, and I'm, I'm not here to blame or to judge, but that just sounds like you're living with fear as your motivation, not love. You've got fear of not doing something right or, or doing something wrong. You don't understand grace. We don't fathom that once we accept this glorious exchange that we've talked about, once we begin a relationship with God, it's by grace and through faith in Jesus, then at that moment, God declared us blameless and holy. He adopted us into his family. He's chosen us. He delights in us. We're his sons and daughters. We're his co-heirs of everything that he has. Think about your family. If your kids do something wrong, you don't disown them. That's the time you love them and embrace them. Don't be motivated by fear. Be motivated by love. When you see somebody who shows a ton of fruit in their life, we'll talk about fruit next week. They long to serve, they encourage, they sacrifice, they pray, they put others before themselves. Then you found somebody who's motivated by love to live in the freedom of Christ. And this is so crucial for Paul because this is the application of everything that he's been talking about with the Galatians. And this is one of those things that's a biggie for Paul. He never strays too far from this. He explains the same thing to the believers in Rome probably seven, eight, nine years after he writes this to the churches in Galatia. Look at this in Romans 13, verses 8 to 10. We'll have this on the screen. Owe nothing to anyone except... To love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. He says, for this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, and you know that Paul knows there are, it's summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. God's love changes people. Amen? It does. That's one of the things that really impacted Paul here in Galatians. He loved these people. He loved them so much he was willing to risk offending them. His desire for them was for the best. He put them before himself. And then he leaves and he sees these false teachers come in and they just try to change the Galatians without loving them. That's not freedom. That's manipulation. And again, clearly from context, we see, sadly, the people in Galatia were not doing this well. They were not loving one another. In fact, it was so bad that in verse 15, Paul says these people are biting and devouring one another. They're not cannibals, they're fighting. Paul's observing that because of this discord and dissension that the Judaizers had created, now there's all this strife in the churches. You got these folks who are leaning towards turning back to the law, and then you have the folks who are saying, no, I'm going to stand steadfast and the truth, and now they're fighting. And you say, well, I'm sure that doesn't happen in the church anymore, right? I googled some information on how many churches will close their doors this year, just in the United States. You want to know how many? I don't know if you really do. Between 3,500 to 4,500 churches 
have closed every year in the United States in the last decade. Why is that? I'm sure there are a lot of reasons, but some of them are the stuff that Paul's talking about here. It's people in the church fighting and arguing and dividing and gossiping because we can't find unity. We need to have unity on certain things. For sure, salvation things. We have to have unity. But there are other non-essential things where we can agree to disagree. We can agree to not devour and consume one another. We can agree to put our neighbor before ourselves, put their interests over ours. And here's the deal. We, we get to study this book of Galatians together, and then we leave every week. And we get to go apply this truth in our lives. How are we doing? Are we grasping God's grace? Are we motivated by love to go out and serve others? Do we understand that freedom is freedom to love? Freedom to serve? It's not freedom to lust. Freedom to sin? I want to do something just a little different as we close. But I've been praying about this all week, and I'm going to keep praying that we will engage in this well. And let me tell you, there are people in the body doing this really, really well already. But I I want all of us to do this. We're going to practice loving our neighbor. We're going to come and and sing one more song and worship, and I've got just a couple of announcements. But after that, let's visit. Let's love our neighbors. Don't just wave at the folks you know as they head out to their car and say, hey, see you next week. Meet somebody new here today. And practice greeting and loving them warmly. Let's talk to people and not just superficially. Let's talk to them to figure out, hey, is there a way I could serve that person this week? Wouldn't that be incredible? Take some time to encourage somebody. Take some time to pray with somebody. Invite somebody over to your house this week. I'm inviting somebody in this room to lunch today. You don't know who it is yet. Better tell my wife. Honey, we're going to lunch with somebody. We can do that. Take somebody to lunch after the service. Schedule some time to hang out with somebody this week. Invest in a friendship. Maybe you start a discipling relationship this week. We really, really want folks to be involved in this make initiative, discipling something we're supposed to do. Do that. Listen, here's the deal on this, guys. You don't have to do it because I said it. You get to do it. That's what freedom in Christ allows us. Let's do this. And then go out this week and invite somebody to church next week. Invite somebody that you know and have them come and see this and and just step back and see if they don't recognize God's love permeating through his people. It'll be the most attractive thing ever. Let's do this together. Let's love one another well. Let me pray. Father God, thank you for the opportunity to open your word and be impacted by it. Thank you for Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia. And God, thank you for this challenge. Help us to understand what freedom is for. Freedom is for love. Freedom is to serve. Freedom is not about my comfort and my pleasures. God, help us to live to bring you praise. As we get the opportunity, even in this room today, before we go out into our mission field, maybe our mission field starts right here today. Help us to love one another well. Help us to be the kind of church that makes you smile. God, we love you. We give this day to you, and we ask all that in Jesus' name. Amen.